Would you all pray with me? Father, thanks uh, just for a new day and a new day to worship you uh, in our homes uh, with our loved ones. Uh, Father, uh, you are there. You're with us. You are with us in these times. I know that this upcoming week probably has a lot of uncertainties and stress, and I just pray uh, for us. I pray for the schools. I pray for the teachers, the people who work at the schools, for the students. Um, Father, I just pray uh, that as we enter into a new week, uh, we would experience your mercies on a daily, not even daily, like a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And Father, I pray that today you would use your word uh, to teach us to inspire us, to convict us, uh, to change us. So Father, I surrender myself to you. I surrender my heart and my words, the things I've studied and thought about. I give it all to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus one time uh, told a story. And he told a story about a tax collector and a Pharisee who both went into the temple to pray. And he said the Pharisee stood up and he prayed, I thank you, O God, that I'm not like other people. I'm not a thief, I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a scumbag, I'm not like that tax collector over there. In fact, I do all these good things. I fast twice a week, I give a tithe on everything that I make, I'm a really good person. And then Jesus said the tax collector stood far off. In fact, he wouldn't even look up towards heaven. He kept his head bowed down and he beat upon his chest and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, Jesus didn't finish telling us the story, but if he had, he would have told you that as soon as that tax collector prayed that prayer, that someone on the hospitality team overheard that prayer and they ran up to that tax collector and they threw their arms around that tax collector and they hugged him and they said, welcome to the family. And they said, and now that you're in, man, have I got some things for you. And they set them up with an accountability partner to help them work on all their besetting sins. Uh, they gave them 15 different books that all good Christians should read. Um, they, 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 they put them in a connect group, gave them an orange vest so that they could be part of the parking ministry. They signed them up for snacks for the base camp volunteers the following week. Um, I think they even talked them into enrolling in a few online seminary classes. And you know, it wasn't long after that, that that tax collector went into the temple and he stood up and he prayed, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Y'all, what is wrong with us? Now, those things that that tax collector did after he confessed his sins aren't bad things. In fact, they're good things. They're, they're really important things. They're, they're tremendously helpful in, in our growing in our knowledge of who God is and what he's done for us. But they are a poor, if not devastating, replacement for repentance, for a life of repentance. What's wrong with us is that we avoid repentance. We want to believe that repentance is just a, a one-time thing. We repented and now we move on. But we miss it if that's how we think. Because God's way of changing us is through continual repentance. 
Lasting change cannot happen without continual repentance. We can do all the good things in the world. We can do all the Bible studies. We can serve the poor. We can teach kids about Jesus. But without repentance, you and I don't change. Repentance is the tax collector's simple confession, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We've come to the end of our series on the Psalms, but my prayer is this is just the beginning, just the start of all of us taking all of our emotions, all of our thoughts, all of our circumstances, all of our trials, and putting them on display before God. And I think it's fitting to end our series on the Psalms with repentance. And when we're going to be looking at probably the most famous Psalm on repentance, Psalm 51, because God uses repentance to start something new. With repentance, something new is started. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is simply agreeing with God. It's simply changing one's mind. It's simply turning around and saying, oh, that makes sense. Repentance isn't change itself. It isn't, it isn't the, the change. It is the method by which God changes us. So when we repent, change does happen. Now, it might not happen the way we think it will. It might be a lot slower. That change might be a lot slower than we want. John Wesley said, everyone, though born of God in an instant, undoubtedly grows by slow degrees. And that method of growth is by repentance. When we repent, change does happen. Now, maybe you've said before, I know I've said it, people don't really change, right? You think, no, you know, as much as we want to believe people change, people don't change. Now, if that's true, if that's, if that's the reality, then this whole thing's a sham. We might as well, you might as well turn this off. Like, if, if you can't change, if I can't change, if people don't change, then what are we doing? There's no point in showing up at Rue Group. There's no point engaging in these conversations on race and unity. If change doesn't really happen, if people don't really change, then we might as well throw in the towel. But deep down, I think we all know change has to be possible because we know no matter how much we try, no matter how much we try to distract ourselves with temporary pleasures or, or performance-driven accolades, we can't fully escape the thought that God had something in mind when he thought us up that you and I were designed for something more. And it's bigger than who we sleep with. And it's bigger than how quickly we ascend the corporate ladder. It's bigger than how, how much other people look up to us or depend on us. We know we were made for something bigger and there has to be a way to get there. And there is. God uses repentance to start something new, which is really old. Repentance reorients us to our original design. Repentance helps us see what God had in mind when he thought us up. When you and I repent, that's why the practice of repentance is so important. It results in us living out our good original design. So with that being said, let's look at this very famous psalm on repentance, Psalm 51. Um, I'm going to read the whole psalm, but we're going to focus primarily on the last part of the psalm, because I think in the last part of the psalm, we see what it looks like when an entire community gets it, when they get the importance of repentance, when, a, when an entire community becomes a, a group of repenters. Because that's my hope. That's my hope for us as a church, that we would be a church full of people who know how to repent. So 
With that being said, let's read Psalm 51. If you want to know the context for the psalm, um, it's, it's a psalm written by King David after he committed some pretty awful sins. You can go and read that in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 uh, if you want context. But here, here's the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. It's an incredible psalm. And maybe an encouragement for this week is to just take some time to just sit in it. And maybe even just little parts of it, because each verse you could actually spend a lot of time kind of thinking about and and meditating on each verse. And so maybe this week, just take some time and just do a little chunk of Psalm 51 throughout the week. But like I said, I want to focus on the turn in the psalm. It happens in in verse 13. Did you hear how in verse 13, all of a sudden David shifts his focus? Verse 13 says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So the first 12 verses, David's confessing his sin. And what's he doing? He's pleading with God. He's saying, God, please act according to your nature. Please act according to the, to the things that I know about you, that you are a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. Cleanse me. I know you're a God who can cleanse. I know you're a God who can create a new heart in me. I know you're a God who can restore to me joy, even in the midst of all my mess ups, even in the midst of all my brokenness. I know that you can bring about your salvation. And so when David sees that God will, in fact, act like God, what does he do? He turns his focus and he says, boldly, he will testify to the grace of God for the sake of others. He will teach others about this gracious, good, and loving God. He makes a commitment to tell his story, to tell it truthfully, to tell his story in light of who God is and what God has done. And here we are 3,000 years later, and and David is still telling us his story truthfully. That's the first sign 
that we have truly repented and a change has begun to take place in us. We begin to talk about God and His grace for the sake of others because we want other people to know Him. Frederick Buechner says, If I tell my story truthfully, the chances are you will recognize that in many ways it's also yours. It is precisely through these stories and all their particularity as I have long believed and often said that God makes himself known to each of us most powerfully and personally. Your story, told truthfully, God will use to make himself known powerfully and personally to those who seem far away from him. Your story told truthfully is good news for others. I hate when, uh, when anyone tells me that I'm judgmental. Uh, it makes me, it, 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 my, my initial reaction is always like, what? Like, what in the world? How, how in the world can you think that? And then I begin to think about like, you know, how much time I spend preaching on grace and, and, and how, I, you know, that's, that's, that's what I think it's all about. And, and then I start thinking about that person who thinks I'm judgmental. And I think, well, they're just, you know, they're just living in a way right now that they're feeling guilty about their choices and, and they're projecting those guilty feelings on me and turning me into the judgmental person, but it's really because of the way that they're living that they're feeling judged and feeling guilty. And yes, y'all, I can hear myself too. I, I know, I know, they're right, right? I am judgmental. And the reason I think Christians are often seen as judgmental is we often teach truth without telling the truth about ourselves without sharing our stories. I can talk about grace and the theology of grace all day long, but unless I share my story, unless I, get, unless I make it personal, unless I reveal to you truth about me, I'm gonna come across as judgmental or hypocritical. You and I, we can teach truth without telling the truth. And so a sign that we have truly become people who understand repentance is we teach the truth by telling the truth by telling the truth about ourselves. And it's been my experience that anyone who is far from God or uh, is resistant uh, or even hostile towards Christianity, they're instinctively drawn to me when I'm contrite. Why is that? Well, Martin Luther says that the Christian faith is a matter of personal pronouns. I often think about the story Jesus told of the prodigal son and you know, he, he, he goes away from his family. He asks his father for his inheritance early and he squanders it in wild living. And, um, and, and I often think about like, why, why did he do that? Like what, what about the dad was so hard to live with? Because at the end of the story, we know the dad welcomes him with a hug and a kiss and throws a party. I mean, the dad seems like pretty cool dad. But then you meet the older brother, right? And the older brother's this, you know, type A, works really hard, feels like he deserves everything because, because of how hard he works. And, and I think, you know, if I had an older brother like this guy had, I'd probably run away from home too, right? If he had an older brother who was never contrite, who was never honest about his own struggles or his own sins, if, if he had an older brother who always set himself up as the example of the good one, and and, and if the, the younger son thought, well, in, if, in order for me to be accepted in this family is I've got to be like my older brother, and he thinks there's no way I'll ever be like my older brother, um, then no wonder he would run away. No wonder he would say, I'm out of here, because he could never measure up. 
as we become a community of people who daily repent, we become a community of people who share the gospel with personal pronouns. We share the gospel in such a way that it invites the younger brothers home. And maybe you're a younger brother. And if you are, I am sorry that us older brother types have driven you away. But you need to know God wants you home. He wants to hug you and kiss you, and he wants to throw the biggest party. Luke 15.10 says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. God loves you. And I'm sorry if any of us older brother types ever made you feel any differently than that. And parents, do your kids know you need Jesus? I mean, do they really know you need Jesus? John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, once said, we can't be told we are sinners, we have to be shown. And I think the same is true when we're telling others about our sin and our need for Jesus. We can't just vaguely say we're a sinner who needs Jesus and needs grace. We have to show them, especially if we're trying to communicate that to our child who's a teenager. Our teenagers need to know that we are sinners. And yes, they know we're sinners, but they need us to talk to them about our need for Jesus. I remember when I was a teenager, I had a buddy whose parents had gotten divorced when he was young. And I remember around 14, us beginning to piece together some of the story of his parents' divorce, like just little bits and pieces that we had heard because we were determined to figure out who, who was at fault. And, and it seemed like maybe there were some circumstances that like weren't like on the up and up and, and there was, you know, there was something involved in that, that that we weren't being told about. And we spent so much time trying to figure it out, trying to figure out who the sinner was and what sin did they commit. Parents, just tell your kids your sin. Now there's, there's some wisdom in, in making sure that what you tell them they can handle, that it wouldn't be too much for them to carry. But our kids, especially our teenagers, need to know our need for Jesus. They need to see us as, as model, models of repentance, of what it looks like to daily go before God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. So maybe for some of you parents of teenagers, maybe it's even figuring out, is there a sin that you struggle with right now that would be appropriate for you to share with one of your kids and ask them to pray for you? Ask them to intercede on your behalf. Ask them to even call you out on it. Maybe give them permission to speak into your life and to ask you questions uh, on how you're doing with that. Okay, former youth, youth pastor, mini sermon over. But I just, I just think this is so important, parents. Our kids need to know that we need Jesus. Another sign that, that we see in this psalm that should be present if we really are a community of people who repent um, is that we just, we can't wait to worship God. In verses 14 and 15, it says this, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Now, worship is so much more than just singing songs and hymns to God. But when we repent, like David did, we can't help but sing and sing aloud. I can't tell you how many times uh, when I finally, you know, surrendered and just repented, when I finally admitted uh, that I had messed up or I had done something wrong or hurtful, uh, I can't tell you how many times after I repent, I want to go be alone in my car, drive around and sing shout to the Lord at the top of my lungs, right? Like there's something in us that just wants that kind of explosion of praise to God when we have repented. And I don't know if you were, if, if you, if you were, uh, 
tuned in last week, uh, but my, my, my buddy, my brother, uh, Mike Aitchison, uh, talked about that song. He talked about Psalm 98 and the psalm uh, that really gives us a, a song to sing. And, um, and I, I'll tell you, that sermon, there's all kinds of repenting that I needed to do after hearing that sermon. But what I loved about it was that Mike showed us that through that repentance, we have a new song. So if you, ha- if you weren't here last week, if you didn't tune in last week, go ahead and turn this off. Go and watch his sermon. I'm going to say some more stuff, but, but that's what you should do. You should go and listen to Mike's sermon from last week. Because when we repent, we can't help but sing. Then in verses 16 and 17, David prays this. He says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then he concludes the psalm in verse 19 with saying, Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David knows that what gives rituals of worship and sacrifice meaning is the heart from which they flow. Without a broken and contrite heart, God finds no pleasure in what you do. So you can start trying to do all the right things. You can serve and sing and teach and and you can do all the things that, that, that Christians are supposed to do. But if you don't have a repentant heart, It's superficial and it's not lasting and it actually, there's no power in it. But when we come to God with a broken and contrite heart, when we come to him in repentance, he changes us. He starts something new. And in fact, he does use those rituals, those those worship practices and those sacrifices. He uses those to build something new. But the order matters. You can't go out of order. It's like the, the story with the adulterous woman, right, who was caught, um, and, and the Pharisees bring her to Jesus, and, and they say to Jesus, you know, the, the law says that such women are to be stoned. What do you say? And they've all got their rocks up in their, in their, in their hands up in the air, and they're ready to stone this woman. And Jesus says, let whoever of you is without sin cast the first stone. And then, you know, we're told they all drop their rocks, and they all walk away. And, and then Jesus says to the woman, has anyone condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, well, then nor do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, a lot of times we can focus on that last little thing Jesus says. Go and be obedient now. Go and leave your life of sin. But the power comes in what he says right before that. Nor do I condemn you. You see, it was from that place that then all of a sudden what this woman goes and does matters, makes a difference. Those Pharisees, they had already left before Jesus said, you're not condemned. Why did the Pharisees leave? Because they knew they weren't without sin. What did the Pharisees leave to go do? To try to figure out how to get better, how to do it right. They probably went and offered whatever sacrifice they needed to offer for their sins. But right here, David says, if, if, I, were to, if I were to offer you those things, it's not, it doesn't mean anything. It's a broken and contrite heart. It's out of, out of a place of repentance that God starts something new. The order matters. But between those two verses, between verse 17 and verse 19, is this weird verse, verse 18, that almost feels like it comes out of nowhere. David prays, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Why is that in there? What, what does that mean? Why does all of a sudden David start talking about Zion and, and building a city? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Many scholars who are way smarter than me 
think that that verse was added. It was added at a later time that someone put that in there because it was, it was during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. But I'd like to humbly disagree. Now, I could be wrong, but I think that there's something significant about that verse 18 being in there because I think what it's showing is the fruit of a community of repenters. There's a fascinating article that I read uh, that was titled, Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian. And, and the writer explains why she left Christianity, why she stopped believing. And then she wrote this, th- these words. She says, but my secret is this. I liked who I was when I was born again. I woke up each day determined to conquer my sinful nature, i.e. my id, that was prone to thinking only about myself and determined to put others first. I was more selfless. I felt free from the prison of ego. And then she goes on to say, I want desperately and intellectually to believe that you can feel those selfless feelings and be this other focused person in secular minds and realms. But that omnipresent inner light or whatever it was that compelled Christian me, as Jesus says in Luke, to deny myself daily has long flickered out. What this woman is missing, what she's longing for, is the change, is the transformation that comes about only through repentance. As I scroll through Twitter and I see all the outrage and, uh, you know, find out who I need to cancel and all of that, um, it's so evident to me that the only hope a secular world can offer is to get it right, to be on the right side of history to buy the right products, to to support the right candidate, to be the right kind of person. Without repentance, all you have left is to be right, is to get right. Without grace, there's no justification for the sinner, but only to not be a sinner in the first place. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Without grace, our only hope is to not be canceled. Our only hope is to get it right. But you know we have it, and you know we don't. And so we can get mad, and we can get outraged, and we can cancel all the right people, and we can only listen to the the right kinds of people. But at the end of the day, we know, we know that we need to change, but we don't know how. It's through repentance. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Don't sin. Sin causes all kinds of of pain and sorrow. But if you do sin, or when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not just for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. Grace is what frees us to repent. And repent is what changes us. When we repent, we begin to be transformed more into the image of Christ for the sake of others. What that that woman was longing for was to be others-focused, but she knew in her own efforts she could not get there. She was missing repentance. Paul Tripp says, In repentance, my heart turns from the love of self-driven purpose of my kingdom of one to the transcendent purposes of God. 
Let me say that again because I think it's so good. In repentance, my heart turns from the love of self-driven purposes of my kingdom of one to the transcendent purposes of God. Repentance makes us others focused. Repentance makes us like Jesus. God uses repentance to start something new. When Jesus preached his first sermon, and I talked about this when we looked at Psalm 10 a couple weeks ago, he read from Isaiah 61, and, and, and it says there, the purposes of God are to bring good news to the poor and the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to those who are in prison, to give sight to the blind, to comfort those who mourn, a sign that we have become really a community that, that deeply repents is that we are about the things that God is about, that we are about justice and giving voice to the marginalized and feeding and serving the needy and the prisoner. We're about telling our stories truthfully, creating a safe place where, where anyone can show up with whatever they're going through, whatever sin or struggles they have, and what they will hear as they confess is, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. As we become a people who repent, uh, we become people who begin to pray for it to be on earth as it is in heaven because a truly repentant prayer always evolves into a missional one. God uses repentance to start something new. Summit, that's why we're here. We're here to show our city, to show our neighbors what it looks like to change. What it looks like to change is to repent. It's to it's to tell our stories truthfully, not, not worrying about if people will judge us. It's about showing up at regroup and admitting that we don't have it all together, admitting that there's areas of our lives that we can't control. It's engaging humbly in these conversations on race and unity and being open to the fact that even if I never owned a slave, I have played a part in the problem. Summit, I want our city to know Jesus and the way our city is going to know Jesus is by seeing a church, a community of people who are quick to repent. So let's repent. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for our city. I thank you that you've placed us in our city at this time. Father, I, I thank you that as people who understand the gospel, that what Jesus did for us is enough, we are free to repent we don't have to get it right. We don't have to always understand. We don't always have to, have to, to, to do it without mistakes, that because of grace, we are free uh, to tell the truth and we're free uh, to confess and we're free to admit mistakes. And in fact, we know that the power of change comes in our repentance. So Father, would you do whatever you need to do in each of our hearts uh, to make us people who are, who are not just uh, uh, repentant, but people who long to repent more. Father, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for King David. I thank you that he, for us, models what it looks like to come before you and repent. May that be uh, what we as a community are known for. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.